Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast. Hey family, I hope you're well wherever you are and you got that thin blue smoke rolling. This is episode 7 of season 6, my US road trip part 2. In this season, I kick things off with two weeks in New Orleans. There, I head to a couple of competitions and spend some time hanging out with the who's who of Southern Barbecue. From there, it's up to Kansas City for four days of Barbecue Nirvana at the National Barbecue and Grilling Association's Annual Conference and Excellence Awards. The final two weeks of the journey see us head into Arkansas for some R&R, including bass fishing, monster trucks, a state cook-off association competition, an AK-47, and a brush with a tornado. And of course, you're coming with me. In this episode, Saffron Hodgson, the woman behind Bush Cooking, steps into the confessional. Saffron is an Aussie expat living in Seattle, Washington, who is taking the US by storm. It was actually Saffron who kicked off this year's trip to America when she invited Smoking Hot Confessions to be part of the official media team covering the National Barbecue and Grilling Association's annual conference. Here we get an insight into what it takes to get a professional website off the ground and then we go even deeper into what it takes to run a successful professional conference within the world of barbecue. Before we get into it, I'd like to let you know about our awesome merch shop. We've got our incredible Smoking Hot Confessions tumblers as well as hoodies, hats, t-shirts and stickers. There's also two amazing ebooks, 27 Lessons Learned from Competition Barbecue and The Delicious Bacon Manifesto. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com slash shop to check it out. I'd also like to invite you to join us at the Smoking Hot Confessions community on Facebook. If you're looking for a barbecue group full of open-minded people who just love to help each other out, the Smoking Hot Confessions community is a great place to continue the conversation. Finally, however you listen to this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really helps me spread that barbecue love. So without further ado, grab yourself a hearty cyber brisket and join me as I delve into the digital universe with Saffron from Bush Cooking. This is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast with your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? If you want good barbecue, you need good charcoal. And when it comes to charcoal, the denser the wood, the better the charcoal. This is where Dragon's Breath Charcoal comes in. It's made from Australian native Gigi, famous for being the third most dense wood in the world, which means you're going to get 100% quality 100% of the time. The manufacturer of Dragon's Breath Charcoal was founded in 2005 and is the largest charcoal manufacturer in Queensland. A company founded in firm principles and values, the manufacturers of Dragon's Breath seek out opportunities to serve the community, starting with their work in the environmental restoration of Southwest Queensland sheep and cattle stations. Over the years, they've developed dietary charcoal products for livestock and horses and pets. And now there's garden and agricultural soil products that help keep moisture in the soil while it takes CO2 out of the atmosphere. Dragon's Breath Charcoal will be launching on Amazon in October, so stay tuned for more info soon. Alrighty, Saffron, thanks for taking the time to chat with me and welcome to The Confessional. Thank you for having me. So the first question that I ask everybody that comes on the show is, what was the last thing that you barbecued for yourself? Uh, Actually, the last thing I made was a bourbon glazed ham for Easter. 
Oh, that sounds so good. It's actually yeah, one of my kids' favorites. Uh, he he made me go out and get the ham, and we did it, and he, he was super happy. Now, if it's one of your kids' favorites, is it about the ham or is it about the bourbon? <laughs> uh, we'll go with the ham. <laughs> Because they are teenagers now, aren't they? So they're uh, they're about that age. Are uh, they getting there? Um, I just I think they just know that there's a unique flavour in there they like, but they're not quite sure what that is yet. <laughs> and then they get really sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> so what um, what what uh, barbecue did you uh, do that on at home? Uh, so that's on uh, my little griller grill. Um, it's it's a pellet feed smoker. Um, and when I cook for my family at home, it's the one I use because it's, it's actually quite a small footprint. I, I used to feel guilty firing up all my big barbecues just to have like a tiny little corner with what we were eating. Uh, but this one, it, it's, yeah, it's my favourite for my home cooking. And what is that, like a, uh, like a patio size deal? Um, it's actually round. I'd almost say that the, the cook space would be the same as, say, a drum or a Weber. Uh, and it is round with a sliding door rather than a hinge door. Um, yeah, you have to sort of Google it. It's hard to explain. It's not like any of the other ones around. That's not the little guy that we cooked on at uh, Houston last year, is it? Yes. Yes, ah. it is. One of those. I, I fell in love with it there and uh, I got one. Yeah, it's like uh, the, the cooking surface is about the size of a Weber kettle, but it's um, it's pellet fed. It was very interesting. Yeah, and um, it can do the really low cooks, but um, I've also had it up to like 450 and possibly higher and done really nice pizzas in it as well. So it's got all the versatility that I need as well. Oh, fascinating. Very cool. So, alrighty, so uh, tell us your, your background with barbecue. How would you get involved? Um, I think I'm just going to have to say I always was involved with uh, outdoor cooking in some way. I started so young. Um, all the way through like uh, girl guides in Australia and then I started doing the scouting thing and I used to do a lot of camping with my dad like you know a couple of times a month we seem to be off somewhere so I've always had that that live fire cooking in my blood and when I came to America um, that's when I first heard of American barbecue and so then I started uh, with that and it's sort of funny how I did a competition barbecue is because I saw it on TV and I ate it at the fairs and then I started cooking it and I had like this Australian mums group around to my house and I'd made this like barbecue for the first time and I shared it all to them and they're like, what do you think? And they were all like, oh, that's, that's amazing and it's really good. And to this day, that was the worst barbecue I've ever cooked in my life. <laughs> so I decided that I needed to find people that would tell me what they really thought. And because of the whole blind judging in barbecue, I started to get back really honest, brutal feedback. And I think that that is how I actually learned to cook. Right, yeah, because I guess you've got to sort of respond to that feedback and then course correct accordingly. Yeah, and because um, I live in isn't like one of the bigger barbecue centres of America, uh, if we're going to be honest, uh, the Barbecue Association, he has always had comment cards. So we every single cook we do, we'll get a comment back on our appearance, taste and texture. So it means as competitors, we can actually uh, learn and get higher scores a lot 
scores a lot quicker than if we just saw a number and we're trying to work it out. So if you've got a low taste score, you're like, oh my gosh, is that salt? Was it too hot? Was it too sweet? You sort of don't know which direction to go, but by getting those comments, it helps us um, improve a lot quicker. Absolutely, no doubt at all. Now, you're based out of um, Seattle up in the northwest corner there, aren't you? Yes. So what um, what sort of uh, barbecue bodies are up there, are, are active in that region? So um, our prominent one is the Pacific Northwest Barbecue Association, which funnily enough is actually the second oldest sanctioning body as far as barbecue goes in America. And uh, Paul Kirk was one of the founding members of that when he lived in this area. Um, so it operates uh, Washington State, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, and into Canada. That's sort of our footprint. We have gone a little bit further afield, but um, that's sort of how it works. And because barbecue is a little bit different here, uh, this association helps with the people in our area. So our turn-ins are an hour always, not half an hour. The turn-in order is a little bit different. Um, and the association itself helps the events a lot more. So if you think of traditional associations like um, the ABA and KCBS, they sort of put just the judging into a competition where here we tend to put a competition into a whole event. So we'll manage all aspects of the competition. Right. Okay. So you sort of blur that line between um, promoter and sanctioning body. Yeah, we have to. Otherwise, um, there just wouldn't be any events. <laughs> just going to be brutally honest because it's just not something people experience. Like we get a lot of uh, interaction with the public, which is really obscure. Like, you know, how did you cook the inside of the meat so well while the outside is raw? Because they just don't understand the smoking concept at all. Yeah, raw. Oh, you're talking about the, uh, they're looking at the smoke ring and they're thinking that it's raw because it's pink. Yeah, yeah. And we've had people hand me back and ask us to cook it properly and refuse <laughs> to eat it. So, you know, it's, it's been an interesting journey here. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that, that, that's hilarious. Now, you don't, um, you don't only uh, compete in barbecue though, do you? What, what other cooking competitions do you like to have a crack at? Um, so my favourite one to compete in, and unfortunately there's only one in my area, um, is chuck wagon. So for those listening who's not sort of familiar with a chuck wagon, it's what the cowboys used to cook on when they went out and did the big cattle runs. So this association founded around cooking everything roughly like it was the 1890s. And if you think of that as like their only rule, then everything falls sort of falls from that. So half your marks actually come for the chuck wagon. So, you know, is it a good chuck wagon? Do you have a sword? Do you have a bottle of whiskey? Do you have the rifle? Is it all era correct? Is it being restored correctly? So that's one whole half of it, which obviously I'm very lucky that I have someone who lends me one of those. And then the other half's the food. So it's all has to be cooked like it was 1890 with ingredients that were available to cowboys. So I find myself continually having conversations like, sorry, the Cowboys didn't have access to cans of tomatoes back then. And then somebody would be, well, actually, on the trail in 1967 from here A to B, they did actually have canned tomatoes. So the whole competition becomes a history lesson at the same time. So uh, because of the sort of the time frame, everything's done in Dutch ovens. 
We don't use lump or briquette charcoal. I actually burn down wood to create the coals. So I go through about half a pallet of apple wood each year when I compete. Oh, wow. And there's uh, five turn-ins. So they're meat, bread, beans, potato, and dessert. And all five of them get turned in at exactly the same time. So basically, you've cooked this whole meal for your cowboys and the first serve goes to the judges. And when you're competing in this, you are actually genuinely cooking for, and in my case, cowboys. So I've cooked for between 50 and 100 on Dutch ovens and the first serve goes to the judges. I'm just I'm just trying to do the math in my head. Cooking for 50 to 100 cowboys in Dutch ovens using charcoal that you've burnt down yourself that's that like you must have a huge cooking area there um yeah it's just, it's just on a grass and we've got the chuck wagon i think uh when i cook for the hundred we use 21 different dutch ovens but uh there's there's some really big dutch ovens here called maccas uh which somebody lent me because they're actually a collector piece but um i can cook for a hundred um for beans in one of them they're so huge and uh, wow. one of my friends here actually has a Dutch oven where they've got a rigged pulley system that they have to use to lift the lid off of it because it's so big. So the whole that whole world of outdoor cooking in America uh, is also really different and just as interesting as barbecue. It's just it's a little bit underground at the moment. Hopefully it will grow. Yeah, right. Sounds like it would. I think that is something that would go pretty well here. I was... Um speaking with the promoter just a few months ago and he was looking at bringing a, a camp oven category to an SCA competition, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that would be cool. We've um, we paired some up in the Pacific Northwest um, because believe it or not, like everything else, there's a world championships for Dutch ovens, um, which I've been lucky enough to compete in twice and they have events that are sanctioned, which are, the winner goes on to that. So uh, occasionally we'll, we'll tee that up. And for a qualifier for the Dutch Oven Association, uh, it's actually a, a main course, a bread, and a dessert. And they're an hour turn in between each. Right. Which is the other type of cooking I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Now, I, I just got to ask very quickly, do the Americans over there in your <laughs> corner of the uh, country there did they have the same Dutch oven joke that we have here in Australia? Thankfully, no. But every now and then, I've got a strange look of somebody who who is aware of it. Well, when you when you're telling people that you're going Dutch oven competitions, you've got to get some strange looks sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and but the problem is, if I say camp oven, which is what we call it in Australia, it means something completely different again here. So people just get confused. So, you know, always sniggering. Right. What's a camp oven over there? Um, it's more like an, an oven created in the camp environment. So uh, I'm trying to think of something I've seen in Australia. So like in Australia, I don't know if you've ever seen the 44-gallon drums. They're put on their side, the fire's underneath, um, and then the drum itself becomes like an oven, and you can put a rack in it and it sort of sits on there. Oh, I'm not okay. sure if I'm doing justice to that explanation. But you can bake in it and roast in it, but the fire is actually outside of the main drum area. Right. Okay. There you go. You learn something new every day. Now, I do have to ask you, you did tell me once a little while ago you went in a squirrel competition. Is that right? 
Um, yeah, I got to judge the World Squirrel Championship. It's been running for a long time, uh, and it's out of Bentonville, Arkansas. It's a really um, amazing event if anyone gets a chance to go. What does squirrel taste like? That's what everybody asks. So my answer to it, it's not really an answer at all, is everything I ate tasted like it was meant to taste. So somebody did squirrel meatballs with a pasta and it tastes like, like meatballs and pasta. Um, you know, so as people take the meat and adapt it to a dish, it it's not overpowering anything, um, if that makes sense. So I think the most squirrelish dish I had was the a variation on chicken and waffles. And I don't know if chicken and waffles have hit Australia yet, but it's like, um, they call it chicken fried, but it's like a battered uh, chicken. So in this case, a battered squirrel. So they would have had to have spent a fair bit of time tenderizing that squirrel to make that work. And then they cooked it and it served on waffles. Wow. That sounds pretty cool. And, and interesting that it's not uh, sort of gamey like a goat, for example. Um, I think if you, I've learned way too much about squirrels. If you <laughs> catch them at the wrong time of the year, the flavors can change a lot. So if you sort of catch them um, in the spring or you hunt them in the spring when they're eating a lot of uh, fresh growth and green leaves, they taste a lot better than if you get them, you know, when it's sort of in the winter and they've been having to sort of eat bark and and some of those other foods. So the flavour can change a lot through the life cycle, a little bit like barramundi, I'm guessing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the more nutrients they have in their system, the uh, the more better conditioned the, uh, the meat would be. Yeah. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar, you're the founder of Bush Cooking. How did Bush Cooking come about? Um, so Bush Cooking has actually been something I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, I initially registered it in Australia and was doing catering, uh, like outdoor remote catering with it, just a little bit sort of on the side. Um, But in 2000, I actually started collecting content for a book or a website. I wasn't quite sure where I was going with it, but I sort of had the passion. So I sort it was always in the back of my mind. You know, when you get like free time, you start working on something and I'd research something a little bit more and, Eventually, in I'm going to guess 2016. See, I can't even remember how old it is. <laughs> uh, I finally did it. I finally just uh, I my goal was to take six months off of work and get this site built, get some of the content in there that I wanted, get it all the structure set up, and then go back to work. As it turned out, um, I managed to not work for 13 months before I found the need that I had to go back to work and I ran through the budget that I sort of allocated for that time and um, it's sort of been plodding along ever since. That's awesome. Most people usually go the other way around. They budget for 13 months and only make it six. (laughs) Yeah, it was an interesting time. I was being very frugal. Yeah. Now, i got to ask you something my mum asked me every time I talked to her. How are you going to make money from your website? Yes, that's like a super good question. So before I did take the leap into doing this, um, I did research a lot. So uh, the International Food Bloggers Conference, I I go to that uh, regularly and they 
periodically, I think it's like every two or three years, do a study of all the people who have blogs and food websites. And I, I read a lot of this and it gave me a real grounding in what I was getting myself into. So I can't, I'm not sure if these are correct or not, but this is how I remember it and what motivated me is only like three or 4% of all people that have food blogs or food websites actually make enough income for it to, to sort of sustain them without having to have a second job. And even then, when they're doing this, they have multiple streams of income, like up to seven, and very few of them actually are the website. So you could say that the website is the biggest, most expensive web card, web, sorry, the biggest, most expensive business card you could own. And you, I've sort of used my website to build my personal brand, and then that's where I make the money from. So people get me to teach, I run classes, uh, do demonstrations, I still do the competitions occasionally. I can make a little bit of money out of that, but I don't think I'm serious enough anymore. <laughs> um, you know, I've written articles for a few people, I do a little bit of consulting. Uh, so, you know, it sort of all adds up. Yeah, right, yeah. I'm a little bit uh, depressed now that only three people make a living out of their websites. Um, that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it certainly explains why I'm still working full time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an it's an interesting and highly competitive world. I mean, Google's like we know how it manages the the world wide web, and it's got all of its SEO that people talk about. But um, my website in particular is very recipe based, and recipes are so common. Like, there's literally millions of sites which have a, a significant recipe component, that Google has a whole separate stream of optimization rules just for recipes. Really? So, you know, yeah. So, like, it's, for me, like, when I was setting it up, I knew this, luckily enough, because I worked for all recipes, which I literally only went to the job interview because I knew I wanted to start my website. I didn't actually think they were going to employ me. So <laughs> I ended up working for six years, which was amazing like just sitting in there learning and working um so that made it really easy when i started my site um in some regards because it wasn't completely foreign um yeah so i knew i knew this i sort of knew what i didn't know and i knew that i had to find skills in it so when i was looking for my web designer it was it was hard because i had to find someone who knew that whole second level of um SEO and how to build the site so it worked on Google because uh, many people don't even know that. I think there's seven separate streams of like really niche algorithm that sits in Google. Fascinating. I, I certainly hadn't heard of that. So can you can a site be be multi-stream? Like if, if you've got articles and how-tos, uh, can mm-hmm. you have, can you like set up your SEO so that it works in different streams. Have you got to pick one or the other? Um, yeah, you can optimize each page for a specific thing. If that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, excellent. I'm going to have to spend about the next three <laughs> months going through and rebuilding my own website again. <laughs> it, a lot of it's just tweaking. It's not like like a rebuild, like a complete rebuild. It just depends what you're trying to do with your website too, um, and it comes back to your business model. So. Um, So when I work for all recipes, for example, 
their business model is almost all of their page views come from SEO. Uh, you'll notice if you're in America that you almost never used to see any advertising at all. Like you'd never say, see, come to our site and it would never flash up on your page or anything. It was a full SEO driven model, which is what I was working with when I was there. So when I started my business model for my website, I had like an SEO component, but it might've been only a goal of 50% of my viewers come from SEO. And then the rest of my viewership um, was divided between say social media coming in. So I have a really strong um, Pinterest, which is interesting because it's not one that most of us do. Most of us are focused on Facebook and Instagram, which may be why I'm doing so well there because there's just not very much content. And then, the, the third area was like the direct traffic, which is what I get when I travel around and do events, whether I'm competing in them or running in them or doing presentations. That's building up the brand of bush cooking as well. So it's like there'll be a lot more people who come to bush cooking and say that they're there because they've met me or seen me or eaten something I've cooked, where like a model like All Recipes it's just found through searching something like, oh, yeah, every time I search, I get an all recipes recipe. Um, so that's sort of like the difference. So you sort of need to know how you're pitching your website and what you're trying to get out of it, if that makes sense. Wow. Yeah, there's some uh, some good advice here. I'm going to have to unpack once we're off the air and uh, work out what I'm going to do to set mine up properly. Um, now, speaking of uh, of getting around and seeing different people and meeting different people, I was watching uh, Backyard Barbecue Wars on TV there last Sunday, I think it was, and I noticed that Bush Cooking mm-hmm. got a big uh, got a big shout out at the end of the show. What was happening there? Yeah, um, so when any TV show is being developed, they're always looking for sponsors and that type of thing. And I'd been thinking about um, trying to do something a little bit different, which didn't involve me running around like crazy and <laughs> wearing myself out. So um, I looked into that and uh, a lot of people watch those types of shows and they see this amazing food being cooked but don't know how or the show in its need to sort of focus on entertainment and with the time, it sort of jumps huge steps. So I wanted to, to work with these guys to make sure that what they were cooking had a recipe so people could actually do it at home. So it wasn't just entertainment but it was also educational which is one of the platforms of my website is the education element to it. So, uh, yeah, it, we, we talked, we negotiated and it happened and it was really exciting. And I actually was on location and took all the photos of all the recipes. So I got to see it being filmed, which was an amazing experience in itself. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty excited with, uh, and happy with how it all turned out. Yeah, yeah. Where was that filmed? It looked like it was at a beautiful golf course or something. Um, yeah, the first that first episode one was filmed at a golf course, uh, but it moves around uh, for each episode, and so uh, different sponsors' uh, locations are featured at different times. So ah. it was cool. I got to see a lot of Melbourne. I hadn't, I'm sorry, a lot of Victoria. I hadn't seen before. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So, what um, what do you think you would say has been your biggest challenge with uh, bush cooking, and how did you turn it around? Um, I think my biggest challenge is this is like my baby, if that makes sense. 
so everything sort of has to be perfect and the way I envisage it because it's like my dream. So when I do work for other people or I work on different projects, it's much easier for me to sign off on things and, and go, that's okay. But with my own website and my own work, because this one was so long in the build, it's like I'm always fussing about the tiniest details and I, I know it's called gold plating and I know that I shouldn't do it. And sometimes I just have to take a breath and go, I have to believe that my designer knows what he's talking about. And I have to believe that my coder knows what they're talking about. But I'm always trying to um, make it perfect. So, which, which is a big risk with small businesses and entrepreneurs. Like sometimes I'm envious of the guys that just look at the numbers, look at the money coming in, look at what people want and just follow that because they have much quicker growth in their business. But for me, this is a little bit more like a passion and, you know, it's, it's about teaching people and about the feedback I get from people and, and the feeling that someone's cooking that recipe out there, you know, and enjoying it. So, yeah. So it's, it's, it's separating the emotional side from the decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm still working on it. I'm going to be honest. I write a lot of lists and I do do all the academics around it, but then every now and then, I'll look back and I'll go, what happened in the last three weeks? Like all of those decisions were made emotionally, not based on me making sure I'm going to have a, a, a check at the end of the month. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what's been your biggest success then? Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't know if it's because I'm a modest person. But I was about to say that's I, a I very Australian I, answer. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that um, I've personally been pleased at the growth that it has had. Um, and I did manage to, because, you know, when you build a business plan, you sort of write a, a six-month goal, a 12-month goal on where you want to be with your KPIs. Um, so when you're talking about website KPIs, it's page views, visitors, time on the website, bounce rate, all those types of things. And I think I was about 12 months into my plan and I'd already hit my KPIs when it comes to page views and stuff that I had like set for well into the second year. So um, the growth was a little bit better than I wanted. So I don't know if I didn't push myself or set targets high enough or, um, you know, what I did just happened to work. But, you know, I I guess that's a success story um, and something that sort of made me sort of happy. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you got coming up in the future? Um, So I've actually got a couple of projects on the website continuing to try and make it perfect. Um, I'm not really happy with the way it prints recipes right now. So I've got a project uh, where we'll be improving the printing because as an outdoor cooking website, I, I don't think people should be taking their phones and tablets out to the bush so I'm trying to get like a better printout. So, you know, you can take it, scouts can take it on camps and they can cook things. So that's a big project. Um, I've learned a little bit more about photography and photos and the technical side of photos, um, which impacts site speed and those sorts of things, which then in turn impacts how well it's found by people. So 
I'm doing photo projects too. So basically really geeky techie, technical things is what I'm doing. I don't have any, um, I just love to go, I'm going to do this or write a book or do my TV show, but no, they're not actually of interest of me right now. So you're po- polishing, refining and fine-tuning. Yep, just, you know, do that one thing and get it, like, perfect and then maybe one day worry about something else. Hey, this is Cam from Third Degree Burns and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. If you're looking for your next barbecue smoker or grill, Jagged Woodfire has got what you need. Owners Julianne and Glenn are multiple award-winning barbecue competitors who have even travelled to the US to compete at the World Barbecue Championships in Houston, Texas. Based out of Perth and shipping nationwide, Jagged is one of the largest pit builders in the country and has an ever-growing lineup of meat cooking machinery. Not only do they have their now famous smoker ovens, they are also producing incredibly efficient gravity-fed cabinet smokers and some of the most stylish asado grills you're ever going to see. Jagged is also well known for amazingly detailed custom work, ranging from backyard designs all the way to installations in commercial kitchens. Proudly Australian designed, owned and manufactured, you can find out more at jaggedwoodfired.com.au, spelled J-A-G-R-D. Once again, head to jaggedwoodfired.com.au, spelled J-A-G-R-D, to learn more. Alrighty, Saffron, it's time to get into the nitty gritty. So for this second segment, I want to get into what it takes to put on a professional conference. Now, as if you weren't already busy enough with what we've just talked about with bush cooking and whatnot, you're also the executive director of the NBBQA. So let's quickly catch some listeners up on uh, who may not be familiar, what is the NBBQA and what do they do? So the NBBQA is the National Barbecue and Grilling Association. But what makes it different to all the other associations in America is the way that this is registered is it's a professional association. So it's not about competition or a sanctioning body or anything like this. This is purely about the business of barbecue. So the members are people who have businesses in the barbecue industry and it ranges from products, uh, big and small, to sources and rubs, to ones which can be found nationally, to uh, the guy who might just be selling it at his local butcher. Uh, It includes a a pretty big quorum of media teams. Pretty much all of the non-profits like KCBS, um, Kids Q, Nation, SCA, all of those are members as well. And what else? Restaurants, everything, everything to do with the business of barbecue. And so the goal of what we're doing is to try and help each other and actually raise the the quality and um, just the general business sort of environment when it comes to barbecue in America. Right. So sort of... Um I guess modelling off the the community that we see between competitors and sort of trying to f- develop that sense of community amongst the, the the broader business scene. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so how did you come to be the executive director? So if we remember back in segment one, that bit where I said that I ran out of money after 13 months. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> at almost exactly the same time, uh, the NBBQA was looking for a new executive director, um, I was pretty 
uh, vocal that I was very interested in doing this. They'd had a lot of previous um, executive directors and CEOs which specialised in association, but this time they were looking for somebody who also knew the barbecue industry. Now, the problem with people who know the barbecue industry is they're working in the barbecue industry. So I was sort of like a unique offering where I had a pretty good knowledge, but I wasn't working and I needed a job. So uh, I think that they got my skill set fit and I, I took that on. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be hard to be uh, to be on the board of an organisation like that when you're putting in 80 hours at a restaurant as well. So you're absolutely in a, in a very unique position there. Yeah, so um, so I'm the executive director, which is like the contract role. So I like to say I'm the glorified secretary of the board. And as you mentioned, like the board um, is all professionals in the industry. So we have a 12-member board. Uh, we have representatives um, like outgoing president Mark Lambert, who's got his own rubs and own barbecue line and does distribution. Uh, we've got Kevin Coleman, who actually is part of Weber. Uh, we have restaurants, so Barrett Black from the famous Blacks, he's part of it. Yep. So the whole industry is represented, but these guys all have a business and as well. So amazing that they, they actually volunteer so much of their time to help the industry as a whole. Uh, so it, it's a pretty special group of people. Yeah, so that's uh, that's absolutely uh, true what you're saying there, the, um, that, that input sort of taking their wealth of wisdom and knowledge and then volunteering that to uh, for the betterment of everybody. That's that's very uh, very gallant and very notable there. That's fantastic. So why why is a body like the NBBQA important? Why are professional conferences important? So when you, you've got a business of, of any sort, um, it's really easy to, to feel alone and to sort of get stuck by yourself working on the business. So if people are listening and they don't even have a barbecue business, but they have a business of some description, it's really important to get out and network within your industry. So a lot of the people who come to the conference uh, get the most benefit from networking with other people who've sort of done what they're doing and they can pass on the lessons that they've learned so you don't have to learn them again. Uh, I've just got so many examples going through my head. But I, I remember Dave Raymond from Sweet Baby Ray's. He did a presentation about their restaurant talking about the serving size of their fries and how they went from just sort of doing it by hand to actually measuring it. So they were actually giving the same amount that they were advertising on their menu only to discover that the oldest time they'd been over-serving the fries by so much that the seller of the fries, like their, their retailer came and actually asked them if they'd started buying their fries from somebody else because they had dropped back so much. Oh, wow. And he was explaining the morals of the story was all about like watching every cent and where it goes and every part of your business um, from dripping taps, like how much does that actually impact you to over-portioning? Um, so just hearing that, even if you may have thought it, 
all of a sudden when you go back to your restaurant, you're looking at things slightly differently and you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I've done something wrong or I made a mistake. You go, oh, somebody else did this too. You know, I'm not alone. You know, I'm going to call them up and ask them because now I've got this similar problem. Maybe they've had that issue as well. So we find that we end up with lots of people that keep in contact. So there's a lot of guys at the conference who will say, I'm here to support the next generation because when I was starting out, Mike Mills helped me or uh, Linda from The Shed helped me. And so now they're back helping the next generation to make sure that the businesses that they're, they're doing in the barbecue sector have the most opportunity for success. Beautiful. I love that so much. So where would you recommend someone start if they wanted to put on a conference? <laughs> Don't. Um, Not so the answer I was looking for. <laughs> so there's two models for conferences and I, I attend both types of, of them. And um, it, I think it's important when you're setting your expectations to know which sort of conference you're going to. So the International Association of Color Professionals, like I spoke about before, that conference is a business conference as in somebody owns it, somebody makes decisions, someone makes a profit out of it and people come with a, an expectation on that model. The conference that the NBBQA runs is put on by a non-profit. So it's a volunteer association. So there's myself, but there's a conference committee, which is all volunteers. Almost every aspect of the conference is volunteers. 100% of the speakers were not paid. They were all volunteers giving back to the industry. So running that type of conference, anybody who's been a volunteer in anything, whether it's like Boy Scouts or on the school committee, can understand how difficult it can be with volunteers. Oh, it can be like herding cats. Yes, it's like, you missed a deadline, you're fired. It doesn't work like that. It's volunteers. Like the whole time, you're like, please, can you do this? You know, please. Like, I know you're really busy with the thing that's actually paying your bills, but we sort of need this. Yeah, yeah. So it's always going to be a little bit more dynamics in those types of conferences. So think like a, a Boy Scout conference or a uh, the school baseball I'm remembering which country I'm talking to now. Like the cricket, <laughs> you know, the, the cricket Christmas dinner is always going to be different than if you go to the professional work dinner because they've, they've got different management models, if that makes sense. Yeah, so absolutely. If you're going to do a conference, I think the number one thing in my, my context is to make sure you've got good volunteers. Uh, we all share a common vision of what we're trying to achieve. And there's accountability to everybody for the action items upon them. And the other thing I'm just going to say is if you ever volunteer, the thing that makes me the absolute happiest, and this isn't just MBBQA, I do a lot of volunteering for a lot of groups. Believe it or not, I'm on the PTA, which some people still can't believe, you know, and I do stuff for the Scouts, is I would prefer someone to just say, no, I can't do that. And to say, yes, I can, knowing that they probably can't, but they're, they're too scared to say no. Mm. So I love it when people say no because it just makes my life easier. Yeah. So, you know. 
Yeah, interesting point. So I'm guessing that uh, sponsors are some essential partners that uh, that a conference organisation would need to have. How do you source and select sponsors for a conference? So for the uh, NBBQA, we reach out to our members and we ask our members this year if they want to be involved in supporting the conference because obviously there's a massive overhead. It's not something that can be run on purely attendance money at all. Uh, in the NDBQA's uh, annual model as well, it's our single primary fundraiser for the year. So people are familiar with that. So different businesses at different times come in and then they'll take control of a particular area to, to help. So part of it is marketing to them because for, so it's business to business marketing, uh, which shouldn't be confused with business to business to customer marketing. So sometimes it, it limits our pool because uh, there's people that have lots of money in their budget to get in front of people and sell the products to the end user. But in a business association and a conference, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to find people that want to spend the money on the business to business relationships, if that makes sense. So it's a little bit of a different and it's also making sure that they understand that because like a lot of the conversations will always start with, well, how many thousands of people am I going to get to talk to? And it's like, no, no, no. It's like how few important people are you going to get to talk to? Uh, so that's sort of the the thing that sort of means it sort of limits us in some ways, but it also is what we're all about. Yeah, I, I guess it's a fine line. Uh, when you're looking for sponsors, I guess some businesses are going to be looking for, say, just to choose one, say a charcoal company wants to get in front of, you know, Joe Smith from down the street and all the Joe Smiths from all the streets to sell charcoal into their backyards. I guess you've got to kind of look for the sponsors who who are going to want to sell their products to other businesses who are going to use those products. Yeah, there, there are some sponsors that we have, though, um, that just want to put money into the association. Um, so they'll sponsor an element knowing it's more about giving back to the industry that may have helped them along the way or just to keep their brand name in front of the industry. So if someone asks me which restaurant to go to, for example, for something, the fact that I spend so much time and I'm really familiar with the members of the NDBQA it makes it easier for me to talk about their restaurants. Like, oh, I just heard they did a restructure or they just redone their menu or, you know, they just hit 500 uh, restaurants or, you know, because we, we share a lot of information amongst members, I get to see their achievements as well. So by putting your brand name out there and getting it in front of other people in the industry, it helps, helps them in a different sort of way. Mm, absolutely. So I guess the next question then has to be the venue. What do you look for when you're looking for a conference venue? I inherited this venue when I took over. Um, The thing that's super interesting about the conference world, which I just learned a lot about, is you almost have to book the venue at least a year, if not two years ahead. Because these types of venues sell out. So you're always trying to forecast where the association is going to be and what it's looking for in a few years' time. 
So last year, the venue was in Fort Worth. It was a lot more outdoors. There was a lot more hands-on, um, and it was keyed down. This year, the venue that we was decided upon uh, was what I would like to consider more of a traditional conference venue. So right in the middle of Kansas City, downtown, very fancy hotel, beautiful facilities, but all of a sudden the money that people are paying is going into this beautiful environment and it's not going so much into the content or the things around it. So it's always a balancing act. Um, Personally, I feel that barbecues may not need such a nice environment. We're very much just down to the details. Like, I want to know about this for my business. I don't, they don't really care about how flashy it is. So I, I foresee, unless I have completely misread the membership, that um, over the next few years we'll see us doing locations which are more in line with like our members' expectation, which is they want more value for money out of the education side rather than actually the location side. Interesting. That That's a very fascinating insight there. Oh, I've had some very interesting learnings over the last 12 months. I'll bet, I'll bet. And I'm sharing them with everyone. <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned the, the, the education side of things there. What do you look for when you're looking for presenters? So this year what we did is we put out um, a call to all of our members and uh, they could pick a topic three ways. One, they could nominate themselves and a topic, which is fairly traditional. Two, they could nominate somebody else and what they wanted them to speak about. And three was like the answer to the question, if there was one thing I really wish I had someone to, uh, to tell me about, it would be if that makes sense. So um, one of those questions was a HR question and I searched high and low and I couldn't find someone to answer that particular HR question. But a lot of the things people did ask about, uh, we managed to find speakers for. So when it comes to filling the content, it's important that people provide feedback. So if you want a particular speaker at our conference, you just need to let us know and we'll put it on a list. Now, the other thing is from that list, not all of the, the topics and the people could make it to the conference. Like they may have been busy. I think we had three different people filming um, for different TV shows and stuff during that same week that we would love to have had as speakers. We keep that and we're not going to make you wait until the next year but we have like every Wednesday an educational session. So we're in the middle of revamping that. Um, it was, uh, it's been like a phone call for quite a while. And then we explored the option of doing a podcast, which is sort of becoming a saturated market. Um, podcasts like yourself now have such a good following. Like I, I don't know why we would want to go into competition with you. So we're going back to a more traditional association model um which is the webinar so Mm. we can put up powerpoints we can be educational people can ask questions um and so we're in the process of like testing the different technologies to do that right now with the goal fingers crossed of it starting in may and then we'll start to bring in all of those topics that people wanted that we couldn't get into the conference for a variety of reasons 
and uh, get that information out there as soon as possible so you don't have to wait till next year. Yeah, well, do make sure that you keep me in mind for that because I'll be all over that. That sounds fascinating. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So what do you think has been the biggest challenge in, uh, in, in organising a professional conference and how did you overcome it? Um, I, think, I think we sort of touched on it already. I think the biggest challenge, um, I'm going to just go with the general membership expectations, if that makes sense. So it comes like in a few different ways. Like some of the members expect it to be a really fancy professional conference that would cost us like hundreds of thousands of dollars to organise to meet that expectation. Um, then we have a lot of members that love to tell me everything that I could do better, most of which, just for the record, I know before you tell me. But the problem is I'm just one person and I'd love to do like way more than I already do. So it comes back to the volunteers, so the members giving back. So what I, I love is, and, and this does happen, is when a member comes to me and says, hey, Catherine, I noticed at the conference this year that I want to pick something random, you know, that we didn't have potted plants on the table. So I'm going to coordinate that for you next year so every table has a potted plant on it. So coming back to a nonprofit as a volunteer, not just with a problem, but with the solution or the time to actually help resolve it, um, is really, really good because I can guarantee that it's very rare that anyone has a suggestion or something that I don't already have on my list, which is like number 100 past what I can personally achieve. So the whole time is a balancing act for me. Um, it's the first time in my career I have every night gone to bed wishing I had more time so I could cross more things off my to-do list. So all the time I'm making the best call I can to get the best result, if that makes sense. It's like, okay, I have five hours and a hundred tasks. Which one's going to have the biggest positive impact? Um, so I'm not sure if that answered the question or not. No, it does. It does. You've, uh, from, from what you've said, it's basically uh, managing expectations within a volunteer environment where you can't necessarily – uh, hire, fire, promote, give raises, all that sort of thing, you know, which you would in a traditional business model. Yeah, so, yeah, that's it. Cool. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, and fraught with lots of uh, potential toes to step on and then navigate all those uh, those things as well that, that, uh, that comes about from that. So what's what's been the, the, the best thing about it all? The best thing about everything is seeing people who have improved their business because of what they learnt or the network that was created. So when I run into somebody, say I'm in Memphis in May next week, and I was like, Saffron, I went and I did this session and I went back to my restaurant and I implemented it and it's made things so much better. I would never have known that without having come to the conference. I think that that's the true thing that keeps me going all the time is hearing like all the positive things that the association is doing to um, all levels of businesses in the barbecue industry. Yeah, that, that feedback's got to make you feel good for sure. 
So if, uh, if a listener out there was looking at putting on their own conference, what would be your top three pieces of advice for them? Uh, let's flip this question. What are the top three things that people should do to get the best out of the conference when they attend it? Let's, I'm going to flip it. So the first one is to have a clear goal of what you're trying to achieve out of the conference, whether it's educational or networking or just having fun. Like some people just go to let their hair down once a year with people who can relate to them. Um, two is plan how you're going to spend your time. If you want to spend one-on-one time with somebody you only get to see once a year here, make sure you organise it so it actually happens because uh, it's really easy for people to just go in a million different directions. So if there's someone you want to talk to, um, even if you don't know them, you can contact someone on the board or myself and we can help uh, do introductions. I didn't. I felt like a matchmaker at the conference this year. I did a lot of introductions with <laughs> people. Um, but that's that's one of the main points. That's what we're here for. Um, and then the third piece of advice to people when they attend is to make sure you follow up afterwards. So if you've met somebody, if you've seen a presenter that's really good, um, if you have more questions for someone, just reach out and follow up, whether it's through LinkedIn, uh, which I think is something that's not used nearly enough in our industry, uh, or you're more comfortable with email or Facebook. Uh, definitely close out that loop after the event. Uh, you'd be so surprised. I've heard of people that have ended up going to someone else's restaurant, working there for free for three weeks to basically get on-the-job training just from a contact they've met at the conference because they were wanting to start their own restaurant or they wanted to see how another restaurant worked to improve their own. So you, you never know what the follow-up's going to lead to. Got a project you'd like to work on with the SHC team? Shoot Ben an email on ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Founded in 2016, the family-owned Fired Up Barbecue is the barbecue caterer you've been looking for. This is American-style barbecue at its best. All meats are smoked in a traditional wood-fired offset smoker. This ensures only the most authentic barbecue experience for your festival, wedding, birthday party or corporate event. With one of the most impressive trailer smokers on the road today, Bob and his team are based in Sydney but have been spotted as far afield as the Gold Coast, Melbourne or even Adelaide. In fact, their barbecue was hugely popular at both Sydney and Melbourne meat stocks. In addition to private catering, Bob also offers a barbecue school. This great fun half-day course is suitable for beginners through to intermediate level barbecuers and includes an all-you-can-eat barbecue lunch. It is perfect for corporate team building events or as a special gift for that special someone. To find out more and book Fired Up Barbecue for your next event, head on over to fireduppbarbecue.com.au. That's fireduppbbq.com.au. Alrighty, Saffron, it's time for segment three, the lightning round. I'm going to throw 10 quick questions at you and you can hit me back with one word or one sentence. How does that sound? That sounds great. Alrighty, so brisket, fat side up or down? Depends on the smoker, but down. Chicken, breast, wings or thighs? Uh, I've always been a breast person. And pork ribs, St. Louis, baby back or spare? Um, baby backs. I didn't even know there were other types until I reached your America. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, sauce then, on the meat or on the side? 
Uh, I like a watered-down sauce glaze on my meat, but not thick. So not drizzled on it to serve. If it's to serve, it's on the side, but I like it glazed. Oh, interesting, interesting. All right, money muscle, fantastic or overrated? Overrated, mainly because I don't think I know how to do it properly. <laughs> well, let's let let's drive the interest down on, on money muscle and maybe we'll see it disappear. <laughs> <laughs> what's the uh, what's your nemesis cut? The hardest thing for you to cook? Um, it's not a cut. The hardest thing for me to cook is bread. Anything with yeast. So you know how I mentioned I do Dutch oven and other stuff. I cannot cook bread to save my life, and I use a thermostat more trying to cook bread than I do when I cook meat. Oh yeah, because I guess you'd have to use live yeast in the uh, in the cowboy way, wouldn't you? Uh, well. Normally they don't like you using yeast very much because it would just die on the trail. But the hardest thing with cooking any sort of bread outdoors is the temperature control because you've got wind and you've got sun and um, breads just need like that stable warm temperature which can be lost really easily. Oh, okay. What's one tip or trick you wish you'd known sooner? Um, Knowing how to read the meat. What about the future? What do you think is going to be the next trend in barbecue? Um, I think we're going to see traditional barbecue and what I'm calling gourmet barbecue become more independently recognised. Um, and I'm going to harp on this one a little bit. I think it's unfortunate at the moment that we're seeing a lot of really good third generational traditional barbecue restaurants not ranking high in um, commercial like top 10 barbecues because everyone's leaning towards this new gourmet uh, type of barbecue, but we've just got to not forget where barbecue came from and just remember that these guys are, like, still hammering out amazing barbecue. Even, like, the newer, younger generation are doing some amazing things as well. What do you consider to be gourmet barbecue? Um, so if you think about the traditional joints, they tend to be uh, fairly casual, lights, a lot of the trains, pay by the weight and they're starting to see a lot more sit down restaurants now where the food's served to you where there'll be like pomegranate glazes with like you know some fancy vinaigrette slaw and it's wonderful and I shouldn't say in such a negative context like I just did because it's really good but it's just very different. Ah, gotcha okay okay now I reckon I already know the answer to this one pellet grills in competitions yay or nay? Yes, because I need to sleep, but if I have a chance, I'll still bring my charcoal and light fire every time. Beautiful. And last one, if there were a fantasy barbecue league, who would you choose for your team? It's so funny. I actually asked my youngest, who's nine, this, and he put together the best party team ever. <laughs> they would never win anything in a million years. Um, I don't know if I had... Um, a fantasy barbecue league just because I've been able to cook with so many amazing people, but it's all about teams. It's not about individuals. And I feel like, you know, I'd love to work with a team and their dynamics. Um, And I pretty much have cooked with most people I want to cook with, but to pull out individuals for like a dream league, I just don't think it would work for me. Ah, all righty. Kind of, debunks my whole question, but uh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to upset anyone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fair and enough. And if anyone wants to play Dan, they should ask him because it's actually quite hysterical. Okay. As long as it hasn't got Pitbull in it, I'm fine. <laughs> Well, look, that's a wrap for this episode of the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. So I'm going to uh, turn the studio over to you now. So give us some shout-outs, whomever you'd like, and tell the listeners where they can track you down on the interweb. Uh, yeah, so just bushcooking.com. That's where I live. Uh, from there, you can find links to everything else to do with me, Facebook, Twitter, and everything. I'm continually travelling, so I hope I run into all of you at some point. If you see me... Don't feel bad about coming up and saying hello. And I can't wait to see everyone in Australia when I'm back this August. Ooh, looking forward to that. Well, look, once again, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be part of the show and best of luck with all your plans for the rest of the year. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it, family, a behind-the-scenes tour of a successful barbecue website and a profitable industry conference. Much respect and thanks go out to Saffron for coming on board the show again and I'm already counting down the days until next year's conference. Before I let you go, I want to remind you about our killer merch lineup, the Smoking Hot Confessions community on Facebook and if you have a minute, it'd really help me out if you could subscribe, rate and review the show. The ratings and reviews trigger the algorithms and make Apple distribute the podcast further and wider so they are really important and very much appreciated. And that's the end of the show. Until next time, Take care of each other and keep on cueing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. Yeah.